everyone, and welcome to Trip Asks Questions, a podcast where I ask people questions about life, work, and politics. This week, I'm talking to Colorado State Senator Rachel Zenzinger. Ms. Zenzinger, thank you for being here. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. So I'm going to start off by asking you how you got into politics. Just like, where did you start? So I think I've always had politics in my background, in my life. Um, Both of my parents were union members and they were very active in their unions. So for example, my father was a plumber and a pipe fitter and he was part of the plumber and pipe fitter union and they got involved in um, politics from that standpoint. And then my mother is a teacher and she was always a part of the teachers union. So between the two of them, they really encouraged me from a young age to get involved in politics and um, to be aware of what's going on around me politically. When I went to college, however, um, I kind of stepped it up to a whole new level and I went to Regis University. And um, at that university, they very much encouraged us to um, make a change, uh, get involved and try to do what we could for our communities. Um, So my first year, uh, I just did a lot of service projects and a lot of um, programming around uh, political ideas. And then my sophomore year, I helped co-found the College Democrats chapter at Regis University. Um, There was a College Republicans chapter, but there wasn't a College Democrats chapter. So uh, a group of us got together and we co-founded the organization. And I think that that was kind of the beginnings of when um, things kind of took off from there. I was um, probably thrust into local politics um, starting in the early 2000s. I was a swimmer for a a competitive adult swimming organization. Um, It was the Jeffco Masters organization. And um, I had gotten a letter in the mail saying that um, because of funding, they were going to be increasing our fees and they were also going to be increasing or decreasing the number of uh, swimming lanes that our organization was going to have. And that didn't make sense to me. Why would you, why would I pay more for less? So I sent off an email to the executive director and um, complaining about this. And he um, wrote back to me and explained to me um, this thing called a mill levy. I'd never heard of a mill levy before. I didn't understand what that was, Um, but uh, it it piqued my interest. And I started uh, learning that the recreation district that my swim team swam for was actually a special district. And it was not part of the city. It wasn't part, it wasn't a private organization. It was a special district. Um, And so I learned a little bit more about um, special district taxing and mill levies and learned that the um, pool that I was swimming at, the organization, the mill levy had not been raised since 1958. And um, clearly the the team had more than doubled. Our um, town had more than doubled in size. And they just couldn't sustain the organization um, off of a mill levy that was, you know, from back almost 50 years <laughs> uh, earlier. So um, they asked me to be a part of, an, of a visioning group, um, a local group of um, uh, swimmers and other um, competitive athletes to take a look at what the vision for the recreation district would be come 2020. And it was called Vision 2020. 
And uh, when I, uh, so I joined that group and I learned all the ins and outs of the recreation district and um, why they were charging what they charged. And they wanted to go to the ballot to ask for an increase to the millivy. Um, they had already done that six times previously and had failed at the ballot. And so they asked if I would become part of their movement. So um, I participated on the committee. We created a vision for 2020, a strategic action plan. Uh, and then we launched a campaign to raise the mill levy. Um, and uh, they asked if I would uh, be the campaign manager for it. I had never been a campaign manager before. I didn't know what I was doing exactly, but I said sure because I was pretty committed to increasing the mill levy and making um, swimming more accessible um, to our community. So I jumped in with both feet and we ran that mill levy increase and we were successful. We actually ran a bond and mill levy initiative and the bond part failed but the mill levy increase um, succeeded. And that was my very first campaign. Um, after that uh, campaign, I had a lot of uh, local candidates contact me and ask me if I would run their campaigns. So then after that, where did you, what did you do? So um, I actually did run, um, uh, I was a campaign manager for a bunch of local races, um, mostly city council races, school board races, uh, fire board races, um, recreation district races. And uh, after um, becoming quite involved in, in all of those local races, um, I became much more politically aware of my own city council and what the makeup for that city council was, and I discovered that um, my district, I lived in District 1 at the time, that the representative, the council member for that district was um, term limited and was going to be leaving office. And so I decided, since it was a vacant seat, that I would run for it. And so um, I uh, had gotten all of these other people successfully elected, so I thought, well, why not? Why don't I try and, and um, get myself elected? So I jumped in and I ran for the District 1 seat for City Council um, back in 2009, and I was successful. And then, I mean, right now you're a state senator, so tell us how you That's got right. there. So I served on the Arvada City Council for four years, and then... Um, I ran for re-election in 2013, and I was re-elected that November. Um, and then right around that time, the state senator for Senate District 19 uh, actually resigned from office. Um, it was her second term. She had served for one year of a four-year term. And so she resigned um, in uh, very, I think it was in November, November, December timeline. And so I decided I had a bunch of people reach out to me uh, because um, I had uh, actually served as a campaign manager for uh, that senator. And so I had a bunch of people reach out to me and say, you know, you, I, we know you and we think you did a really good job and we think that you should run for the vacancy. So um, I did, I, I ran for the vacancy and um and i won and so i served the second year of that four-year term um, in the state senate back in 2014. Um, i was there for one session 
And then um, in Colorado, uh, if you fill a vacancy, you're not allowed to uh, be in an unelected position, so um, elected by the general population, not just a vacancy committee, uh, for more than two years. And since this was the second year of a four-year term, I had to go ahead and run for, for election in the middle of that term. And that was in 2014. So I, I was there for one session, and then at the end of that session had to run for election to keep it, for the next three, you know, for the next two years, and I lost. So I actually was not there for the last two years of that four-year term. Mm -hmm. um, that four-year term uh, was uh, held by three different senators from our area. <laughs> the first uh, year by Senator E.B. Hudak, the second year by me, and then the third and fourth year by Senator Laura Woods. Um, I was bitterly disappointed and so I decided in 2016 when the seat was up um, at the end of that two-year period that I would try again and I did um, and I was successful and so I um, gained the seat back in 2016 and I've been serving since then. So tell me about what a Colorado State Senator does exactly. So um, there's a lot of different terms, you know, you'll hear that we are uh, legislators, that we are um, lawmakers, that we're politicians, all of those words describe us. Um, but what we essentially do is we um, create laws. We are literally lawmakers. So there's three branches of government. You've got your executive branch, which is run by the governor. And the governor is responsible for all the divisions, all the departments. Um, they're really responsible for the functioning of state government. Um, then you have your legislative branch, which is us. And we, all we do uh, is create law. That's, that's basically our whole job. Um, and then the, the third branch is um, the judicial branch, which um, enforces those laws um, and determines whether those laws are being upheld um, uh, accurately or not. And so uh, we uh, write uh, and carry legislation that has to go through the process. Um, I serve in the state Senate. There are 100 legislators down at the Capitol here in Colorado. 65 of them are House members and 35 of them are senators. Uh, senators have four-year terms. House members have two-year terms. Uh, both the House and the Senate have term limits, so the most that we can serve is a total of um, eight years. So for the Senate, that would be two four-year terms. And in the house, um, that would be four two-year terms. Mm -hmm. um, so uh, in addition to writing and carrying and passing laws, uh, we also uh, assist with uh, constituent services. So um, if I have um, a constituent that has a problem, uh, they would write to me and then I'd try to figure out if I can help them. Usually what I do is I just serve as a liaison um, to the executive branch. So um, I try to get them in touch with uh, the governor's people, um, you know, whoever is in charge of that division or um, a manager of some sort so that they can actually drill down and solve the problem. Sometimes the problem, though, is um, needs to be addressed through legislation. And then that's where I would come in and I would take that conversation, um, that idea, that, that problem that needs to be solved and actually create a law in order to solve it. Excellent. So 
The next couple of questions are going to be about the current coronavirus pandemic, because as you know, we're, oh, I don't even know what week this is, maybe like week 16, I'd say. Sounds like a good number of the COVID (laughs) pandemic, at least in the U.S., since quarantine has started and a bunch of different stuff has happened. So I wanted to ask you first what the Senate did when the pandemic started in the U.S.? So from a legislative perspective, um, we were not really paying attention or aware of the coronavirus and its impacts um, as it was evolving in China, other than what I had heard on the news. Um, We just didn't really think that um, it was uh, something that pertained to Colorado necessarily. Um, Then uh, beginning in um, February, I believe, is when we first heard about the virus and its impact in uh, Seattle, Washington. And um, so we started paying attention at that point in time, um, taking a look at uh, just watching it, you know, trying to determine if this was something that was serious or not. Uh, about a month later, um, uh, by that time, we had had our first coronavirus uh, case here in Colorado. And, um, but I don't think at that time people really understood how um, contagious the, the virus was. Uh, but um, that first week of March, we very seriously started talking about whether we needed to be taking any steps or any actions down at the Capitol in, in response. Um, the majority of the response to the coronavirus really comes from the executive branch, the governor. And what the governor did is he declared a state of emergency. Um, and by doing that, um, he has now access to uh, federal funds as well as state funds that actually are dedicated specifically for the purpose of responding to an emergency. He doesn't have access to those funds, though, unless we are under a declared state of emergency. So um, I don't remember the exact date of that, but once he declared a state of emergency, everything moved very quickly. Um, I believe the legislature, we had our last day at the Capitol on March 14th. It was a Saturday. Uh, we don't ordinarily work on weekends, and so, um, but we knew that we uh, were going to have to, for safety's sake, um, leave the Capitol and um, stay home. So uh, after the de- declaration of emergency, it was about another week uh, had gone by when local public health agencies started declaring um, emergencies as well um, and also um, issuing stay-at-home orders. Now, um, initially, those stay-at-home orders came from your local public health agency, and that's because in Colorado, the way that our statutes are set up is it's the local public health agency that actually has the authority um, in these matters. Um, it's, it's not the legislature. Um, and it's, it's been that way for about 75 years in Colorado, and it really comes after uh, a, a series of, of illnesses, um, uh, sort of like plague type of illnesses uh, that, that came through and swept through the country. And, uh, and they were worried that if politicians were in charge of these critical decisions that impact public health, there might be too much pressure not to move forward with them. 
Um, you know, and, and we have seen that. Um, when we uh, had the stay-at-home order here in Colorado, we had a lot of people appealing to us to overturn that, um, to, to allow people to go back to work. Um, and, uh, and I think the reason why it's in statute the way that it is, is that an unelected person would not bow to the pressures of possibly not getting reelected, <laughs> um, that they could make public health the the most important priority and that the decisions that they would be made would be made with that in mind and and no other um considerations and i so that's the system that we have here in colorado um once there's a declared state of emergency by the governor then the public health agencies uh then become uh, the main um authority in public health and so uh denver the denver public health declared a stay-at-home order uh, then the surrounding area, the three counties that surround Denver, decided to also then declare a stay-at-home order. And then um, the legislature, uh, we had by that time already gone home. Uh, we had recessed from the Capitol um, and uh, were obeying the, the stay-at-home order. And we applied some pressure on the governor to um, apply a statewide stay-at-home order simply for consistency. Um, it became very difficult if, if each one of these public health agencies declared um, a public health emergency, but for a, a different time period, people just didn't know what was what, you know. They may live in Jeffco, but work in Denver, so which one do you follow? Um, so uh, the governor declared a, a statewide um, stay-at-home order really to be able to provide that, that clarity for everybody. And um, and so then the legislature, we, we were home um, abiding by the stay-at-home order. Uh, this became complicated for the le state legislature, though, because per our Constitution, we are only in our legislative session, that session where we can make laws, pass laws, uh, for 120 days. And um, so we, we finished up, right, and when we left home for the stay-at-home order, it was only around day 60 of our 120-day session. So we, were, we, were, we had just kind of crested the halfway point, um, and we didn't know at that time whether the days that we were out counted against our 120 days or not. And so um, the last day that we were in session back in March, we actually passed a, a law, we passed a bill that was a resolution to ask the Supreme Court that question, which was, while we are out on this public health emergency, <laughs> does this count toward our 120 days or not? And uh, for about two weeks there, uh, we didn't know. So we didn't know that if and when we returned, whether or not the clock was still ticking on our 120 days until the Supreme Court gave us an answer. Um, after about two and a half weeks, we did hear back from the Supreme Court, and they did rule that per their interpretation of our Constitution and our rules, um, that we could recess for a moment in time and not have it count against our 120 legislative days. Um, and so because of that, we went ahead and stayed home for um, about another six weeks. Okay. So going forward, what do you think the legislature should be doing in order to continue uh, preventing any further waves of the coronavirus outbreak? 
that's a really great question. And that really gets at, you know, who's in charge? Um, what should our response be? Do we need to have a legislative response or is the executive response um, appropriate? And should that be the only response? So in our minds, we really felt like um, the, the governor in Colorado did a great job of um, uh, getting ahead of the virus, um, really being a leader um, across the country for how to respond to the virus. Um, we dealt with a lot of issues, um, the whole country did, quite frankly, with uh, finding enough PPE, the personal protective equipment. Um, we dealt with a lot of um, shortages, uh, for example, of um, the ventilators that are needed for people that end up being hospitalized. Uh, so all of those types of uh, resources were really covered under um, emergency spending. And the governor um, can't necessarily spend money, only the legislature can um, uh, appropriate and set the budget. Um, that responsibility falls on legislators. So uh, he only has access to the money that's set aside for emergencies and that's it. So um, anything beyond that um, would need to come either from the federal government or from the legislature. Uh, uh, fortunately for us, we did get a fairly uh, large um, uh, contribution from the federal government from the CARES Act that was passed by Congress. And so we, we did end up with about $1.8 billion that came to Colorado to help us address that. But that money uh, was not, we were not able to use that money for our budget, however. It was restricted and it could only be used for a response uh, to coronavirus health related um, issues that came up, expenses that came up through uh, coronavirus, which left um, a lot to be desired. Um, you can imagine that if everybody is staying home and, and not working, um, that our, our revenues for the state plummeted. And uh, they plummeted pretty significantly. So our state budget ended up um, coming up short $3.3 billion, which wow. is 25% of, of our general fund budget. And so in order to budget for the following year, we had to reduce our budget by that amount. Um, and we were not allowed to touch any of the money that was sent to us by Congress uh, for COVID for budget purposes. So that was the first thing that we had to do when the legislature came back into session, is we had to figure out how, how are we gonna solve our budgetary problem. Um, secondly, we realized that that money, while seems significant, actually fell well short of, of the actual need out there in Colorado. So then we decided um, to pull together a series of COVID relief bills that would help um, uh, go a little bit further with, um, with addressing the problems that have crept up since then. So when we returned back to the legislature three weeks ago, we did a very short abbreviated session where we passed our state budget, we passed the School Finance Act, and then we passed um, a, a series of COVID-related bills to try and help uh, address the problems. Those bills ranged from housing assistance, to assistance for utility payments. Um, we passed our own version of a small business loan recovery program to supplement um, the, the small business loan program from the federal government. 
we, um, we passed a couple of bills that actually dealt with education, um, in particular around testing. So if you were um, a, a junior this year, uh, you did not take your, your SATs. <laughs> and, and that's because the, the SATs were canceled. Mm -hmm. um, and so if you are looking to go to college next year, and that's a requirement in Colorado is to have your SAT scores to go to a Colorado-based university, what are, what are they supposed to do? Right. So one of the bills that we passed um, actually um, removed that requirement from our colleges and universities here in Colorado so that students could apply for college without that SAT score. Um, so we, we did a, a couple of bills like that um, that were very much related to um, COVID uh, that we needed to pass in that abbreviated session so that we could help um, people out. Okay. Uh, thank you. So for our final section, I just wanted to ask really quick, you are running for re-election this year to regain your Senate seat. And I wanted to ask, what, what's that like? What's running for office like? So um, this district is what's called a, a competitive district. And the reason why it's considered competitive, it's because no one party controls this district. Um, this district is made up of a third of Republicans, a third Democrats, and a third unaffiliated. So they don't have a party affiliation, which really means that this particular district could go either way. And it has. It has swung back and forth uh, between uh, Democrats and Republicans over the years. Not all districts are like this, though. So if you think about Denver, for example, Denver is primarily, um, uh, I think, historically been held by a, a Democrat. Um, for many years because they have um, a large number of Democratic voters. So it's considered um, uh, probably a, a pretty safe Democratic seat. Um, if you go to some of the more rural parts of our, our state, um, those seats are made up of primarily Republicans. And so the seat has been held for historically for a number of years by Republicans. So there's only a handful of districts that are like our district, my district, um, Senate District 19, that could go either way because our, our community is not made up of a, um, predominantly Republicans or predominantly uh, Democrats. It's, it's a mixture, it's, it's evenly divided, which then also means that um, it's a competitive seat uh, and so a lot of time and attention and money um, gets spent on trying to influence the vote on this particular district. And the reason for that is uh, it all comes down to the makeup of the majority down at the, at the Capitol. So if you uh, win a majority of the seats, then you actually are in power. Um, down at the Capitol. You are the one that um, sets the agenda. You're the one that um, uh, passes all the bills. The, the majority, for the most part, always wins. <laughs> um, and, and whatever their agenda is, whatever the bills are that are aligned with the majority party are the ones that, that end up passing. Um, sometimes at the, uh, in Colorado, we've had a split legislature where the House was controlled by one party and the Senate was controlled by a different party. Um, right now, uh, we have one party that is controlling both. Um, so we actually have what's considered a trifecta in that the Democratic Party uh, it, it controls the House, the Senate, and the governor's office. Okay, so 
And since you're running during this time, what's it like for you running during the coronavirus pandemic? So it's very different than anything I've ever experienced before. So um, the key to a successful election is really getting out and talking to voters. Um, uh, and talking to voters in person on their doorstep is the most effective way to do that. And right now, it's a little challenging. Um, you know, we have health concerns. We don't want to be responsible for spreading the virus. We don't want to possibly put our volunteers or um, ourselves in danger by, you know, coming to a house that has the virus. So it's, it's definitely a challenge this year to be able to have those in-person conversations. So we're going to have to look at ways that we can still connect with people. Um, our goal really is to touch every voter, to, to have an opportunity to hear from everybody in the district what their priorities are for Colorado. And, um, and we're just going to have to be more creative about how we do that now. Okay. Uh, well, it sounds like you are trying your hardest, and I thank you for that. So that is all the questions that I have. So again, thank you so much for coming on. Well, I really appreciate it. And this is, um, I, I love this opportunity to be able to share about something that I really enjoy doing. Um, I wish that more people were interested in politics and would get involved. And I would just uh, really like to encourage your listeners to reach out to your local officials at any level. Um, start off by reaching out to your local officials at your city council, um, or try to reach out to your recreation district board, like I did, <laughs> um, because it, it really is an opportunity for your voice to be heard and so that you can um, have the kind of community that you want. Okay. Excellent. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Thanks, Trent. Thanks to Senator Zenzinger for joining us. Thanks to at of the Ethereal on Twitter for the music. Thanks to my family for, my, for support in my making this. Thank you for joining us. There should be a new episode in the next week or two, but as I don't have any interviews lined up, it might end up being longer than that. If you did enjoy today's episode, please share with your family and friends. More people listening means that I will make more of my episodes. Thank you again, and please have a great day.